Hey, everybody. Every year on the Feast of the Guardian Angels, I remember two things. That I have a guardian angel and that I should pray to my guardian angel more often. In truth, angels, my guardian angel and every other angel, aren't really a huge part of my day-to-day spiritual life, except, I guess, St. Michael. I pray the St. Michael prayer a lot. But apart from that, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about angels. In fact, if somebody says angels, I think about the show Touched by an Angel or Angels in the Outfield, but I don't think as much as I could about the spiritual beings that God created to give him glory and to aid and assist us here on earth. So this week on the podcast, we are talking about angels. We'll hear about California's largest city and how it came to be entrusted to the protection of the angels. But first, our Rome correspondent, Courtney Mares, will take you to the town of Loreto on the eastern coast of Italy. There, a basilica shelters three stone walls that are believed to be what is left of the house of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the house where the Annunciation took place. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people and the angels behind the headlines. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. Here's Courtney. What do Galileo, Mozart, Descartes, Cervantes, and St. Therese of Lisieux have in common? They all traveled hundreds of miles to step inside the Virgin Mary's house, which is preserved inside a basilica in the small Italian town of Loreto. But wait, you might ask, didn't the Virgin Mary and the Holy Family live in Nazareth? How on earth did her stone house end up in a small hill town in Italy? These were some of the thoughts that went through my mind when I visited Loreto for the first time on the Feast of the Holy Rosary in October 2018. What I learned was an answer much more complex and fascinating than I originally imagined. Tradition holds that the Holy House arrived in Loreto on December 10th, 1294, after a miraculous rescue from the Holy Land as the Crusaders were driven out of Palestine at the end of the 13th century. It was said that angels carried the Holy House from Palestine to Italy. This miracle captured the imaginations of European Catholics at the time. From St. Francis de Sales to St. Louis de Montfort, many saints visited the Holy House of Loreto over the centuries. St. Charles Borromeo made four pilgrimages in the 16th century. Christopher Columbus made a vow to the Madonna of Loreto in 1493, when he and his crew were caught in a storm during their return journey from the Americas. The victory of the Turks at Lepanto was attributed to the Virgin of Loreto, by St. Pius V, and Queen Christina of Sweden offered her royal crown and scepter to Our Lady of Loreto in 1655 after her conversion from Lutheranism to Catholicism. Historian Karen Valles, a professor at McAllister College in Minnesota, has written a book about how devotion to the miraculous flying house of Loreto spread throughout Europe and into the New World. The Holy House specifically, I think really captured their imagination because it was, to draw a terrible analogy, it was sort of like um, Disney World where they have those audio animatronic displays where you can kind of go into something and touch it and feel it. The Holy House is, is a relic that you can basically go into. It has a very powerful hold on the imagination. And especially in the early 1600s, there were a lot of um, experiential sites growing around Catholicism sacred mountains where people could go and visit and sort of walk through the entire story of Jesus and Mary. And the Holy House was a big part of those displays. 
not just the actual one in Italy, but replicas, models of Mary's original house where people could go in and imagine her humble beginnings. It actually became really vogue in Europe in the 17th century, not just to go visit the Holy House, but to physically build replicas of it. You had people actually sending for um, uh, broadsheets with explanations of the Holy House, dimensions, materials, decorative features. So it's kind of how-to manuals for building these on their own. What drew me actually to the Holy House of Loretta were the Jesuits. I noticed actually in a lot of records from North America and South America, there were Jesuit missionaries in the late 1600s who were um, rebuilding replica holy houses in frontier missions in the Amazon um, and in Canada. Most of the Jesuits who were carrying um, the Loretto devotion overseas by rebuilding houses or naming mission sites um, had each individually and serendipitously been moved by some kind of personal encounter with Loretto to spread the devotion in their lifetimes. What was really intriguing to me about this was also that they were part of a much larger group of ordinary Catholics. Other missionaries like Franciscans, the Capuchins who are custodians of the shrine today, Augustinians, but also a lot of non-missionaries and even new American indigenous converts who, like the Jesuits who I first was reading about, they individually decided to carry the house forward um, and sort of add to not just the devotion, but to the accounts and replicas and holy sites associated with Loretto. While I was doing the research, I was frequently approached by scholars who told me that there were examples of Loretto in Asia, in Japan, in Africa, wherever Jesuits went and wherever missionaries went. Wherever you see Christianity, uh, she, she crops up pretty quickly. Catholic pilgrims have traveled to the Holy House of Loretto since the 14th century. To stand inside the walls where tradition holds, the Virgin Mary was born, raised, and greeted by the angel Gabriel. In other words, if it is actually the house of Nazareth, it is where the word became flesh at the Annunciation, a point on which the history of humanity turned. It's an extraordinary event in, in history, and one that has become the foundation of a very, very long devotion to Our Lady of Loretto. I spoke with Archbishop Arthur Roche, who is the Vatican Secretary of the Congregation for Divine Worship. Archbishop Roach signed a decree, along with Cardinal Robert Serra, in October, declaring the Feast of Our Lady of Loreto to be a universal feast in the Roman calendar. To be able to go to the place where the Incarnation took place, within those three walls, is a, a remarkable connection to that event. It brings us very close to the reality that the Incarnation is not just something that affected Our Lady and Jesus, her son, but affects us because the message is that God became man, so that man in some remarkable, wonderful way might become more like God. And this place of pilgrimage speaks of that constantly, it speaks of life, it speaks of the unity of the family, it speaks of the importance of nurturing life, of nurturing the family within that unit, and um, talks to us of how close God is to us. 
We know there's no um, roof attached, but there are only these three walls uh, made of stone, which um, is from Palestine, which itself is remarkable. The archaeologists have studied that very, very carefully. I believe in the 1960s, there were archaeological excavations at the site. Um, and they've been actually, I feel, remarkably um, scientific in their conclusions. <laughs> um, I, I don't believe that they've attributed the stones that are there to a particular site, but they have verified two aspects of the uh, miracle of Loretto. One of them is that the house is not on foundations. It's almost as if it dropped from the sky, right? You wouldn't normally build a chapel or anything without foundations. And it's actually on a road. So it clearly was moved there. And the stones are not local to the region at all. There's a lot of layering on the walls. It clearly was used as a sacred space even before it was moved to where it stands now. Excavations in both Nazareth and Loreto found similar materials at both sites. The stones that make up the lower part of the walls in the Holy House appear to have been finished with a technique particular to Palestine. There are inscriptions in Greek and Hebrew that read, O Jesus Christ, Son of God, written in the same style inscribed in the grotto in Nazareth. Archaeologists also confirmed a tradition of Loreto that 3rd century Christians had transformed Mary's house in Nazareth into a place of worship by building a synagogue-style church around the house. A 7th century bishop who traveled to Nazareth noted a church built at the house where the Annunciation took place. As a historian, when I was looking for verification, it, it does confirm to me that it was a structure that was old that was moved. But what about the angels? In an ironic twist, it turns out that historic documents have vindicated the beliefs of pious pilgrims over the centuries. Giuseppe Santarelli, the director of the Congregazione Universale de la Santa Casa, um, he's the one who actually, I think, has laid it out best. He reported that a family of Byzantine nobles called Angeli um, were the actual movers of the Holy House in the late 1200s. In 1900, the Pope's physician discovered documents in the Vatican archive stating that in the 13th century, a noble Byzantine family, the Angeli family, rescued materials from Our Lady's house from Muslim invaders and then had them transported to Italy for the building of a shrine. Further historic diplomatic correspondences published later in the 20th century discussed the holy stones taken away from the house of Our Lady, Mother of God. In the fall of 1294, holy stones were included in the dowry of a daughter of the Angeli family for her marriage to Philip II, son of King Charles II of Naples. The name Angeli means angels in both Greek and Latin. Pope Francis visited Loreto on the Feast of the Annunciation last year and said he wants Loreto to be a particular place for young people to pray about their vocations. Pope Francis said the Virgin Mary is a model for every vocation and said that the Mother of God will continue to obtain spiritual benefits for those who make a pilgrimage to Loreto to pray. The Holy Father, having visited Loreto as a pilgrim himself and uh, seen the situation there, decided that 
this was a devotion and a feast that was worth commending to the Universal Church. And I think that there are several reasons for this. One is that the home of Nazareth, now in Loreto, is a symbol to an age where family life and marriage are very much endangered by our societies in general, and not least here in Europe and in the West in generally. The importance of family life is prefigured in a very special way in this shrine of, of Loreto. That was certainly true for me during my visit to Loreto. I visited on a Marian feast, the Feast of the Holy Rosary, when the Basilica was packed full of pilgrims. But I've brought on a special guest to tell you this story, who just happens to be my husband. Hi, I am Miguel, and I visited Loreto on October 7th. It was the feast day of the Holy Rosary, and inside the Holy House of the Virgin Mary, I asked Courtney to marry me, and she said yes. St. John Paul II said that the threads of history of all of humankind are tied anew in the House of Loreto. Personally, I'm thankful that the little thread in my life crossed Loreto so that I could tie the knot. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Courtney Mares. After the break, Los Angeles is known for the Lakers, a little bit for the Clippers, and as the city of angels. Producer Jonah McKeown tells the story of how Los Angeles got its name and the bold Franciscan missionary behind it. Friends, listeners, Twitter fans of Carl Bunderson, this is Carl's best work friend, Peter Zelasko. I'm the social media manager and arbiter of all food arguments at CNA. What can I say? My opinions on food are always correct. If you enjoy CNA Newsroom in your car, during lunch, or on the run, be sure and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And then force your friends to do it as well. Seriously, come on. Invite them. Subscribing is easy and free on any podcast app like Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. Just open the podcast app on your phone, then search for CNA Newsroom. Click on the subscribe button. That way, you'll get our podcasts as soon as we post them. Now, back to the show. And I'm going to go have some pie. Los Angeles, California. The City of Angels. It's a place where dreams can come true. That is, if you can make it through the traffic. Los Angeles is the second most populous city in the United States, after New York City. And it's not just home to a lot of people in general, it's also home to a lot of Catholics. The Archdiocese of Los Angeles cares for more souls than any other diocese in the country, with nearly 300 parishes and millions of Catholics. But, of course, it wasn't always like this. Long before European settlers arrived in what is now California, native people had subsisted on the land for hundreds of years. In fact, there were actually hundreds of thousands of native people living in California when the Spanish finally arrived in the 18th century. They were mostly the Tonga and Chumash tribes. When Catholic missionaries did arrive in the area, they founded the Mission of San Gabriel Archangel in September of 1771. It would have been, uh, and this is a long one, 
la misión de Santo Príncipe el Arcángel, so the mission of uh, the glorious Prince of the Archangels. This is Professor Ruben Mendoza, an archaeologist by training, and have worked in the California missions for the past 25 years. San Gabriel Archangel was one of the first European settlements in the area that is now Los Angeles, and it was the fourth of the 21 missions that the Franciscans founded. It also had the name of uh, San Gabriel de los Temblores, or San Gabriel of the Earthquakes. The founders of the mission were in the Los Angeles Basin in 1769, when a massive earthquake struck the area. Los Angeles lies close to the San Andreas Fault, and earthquakes remain a constant threat to the city to this day. They named the river El Rio, or the river of the earthquakes. The missions were founded to evangelize the native peoples in the area, and many of the natives did convert. The Franciscans at the mission of San Gabriel performed some 25,000 baptisms in the 60 or so years it was operational. All this was happening at the same time that the fledgling United States was taking shape on the other side of the continent. But today, many in California see the missions as almost synonymous with the repression, mistreatment, and erasure of Native people. So what were the missions really like? And how did they come about? The answer, Professor Mendoza says, is found most fully in the story of Father Junipero Serra. Saint Junipero Serra, in fact. Pope Francis canonized him five years ago. Sarah was instrumental in founding the first nine of the 21 missions in California, many of which would go on to form the cores of what are today the state's biggest cities, such as San Diego, San Francisco, and yes, Los Angeles. He was born Miguel José Sarah Ferrer in the town of Petra, Mallorca, in Spain. Sarah grew up within this um, atmosphere, this milieu, in which the landscapes uh, were all sacred and, and in relationship uh, to the saints of the church. Sarah was sickly as a child, and his family were poor farm workers. The town where Sarah grew up provides clues to his later life as a Catholic missionary. Just down the street from his home, which is still standing, there is a church that has side altars uh, that include many of the saints that Sarah identified with and after whom were named the first California missions. So clearly, that was a major influence in his earliest uh, experiences. Sarah was interested in the church from a young age and eventually joined the Friars Minor, better known as the Franciscans. And very quickly rises through the ranks as a renowned scholar and professor of theology. But he decided to leave it all behind to go and spread the gospel in the new world. In other words, he wanted to practice what he preached, and several of his students had already preceded him. It would be equivalent to an emeritus professor with many publications here in the United States at maybe Harvard University deciding, you know what, I think I'm going to toss this all aside, and I'm going to go out and evangelize in a place I have no idea about. And so he gave it all up for that. Sarah finally arrived in Mexico City in 1750, entering the vast territory of New Spain. This is something to bear in mind. The Spanish had been in North America for over 200 years at this point. The territory of New Spain already encompassed all of present-day Mexico, as well as a huge chunk of the present-day U.S., mostly in the West, but also Florida, Cuba, and even parts of Canada. 
The Spanish would go on to construct some 100,000 churches in the New World. For Sarah's part, as a missionary, he practiced many forms of self-mortification, including the choice to walk everywhere rather than ride a horse. Uh, he was brutal to himself. Uh, he beat his chest with a rock during sermons where he drew blood. He would wear, uh, you know, the hair shirts that were typical of the time. He slept on a two-by-four. He made himself extremely uncomfortable, but he felt he needed to remain in the spirit and, and centered uh, and away from uh, the, the temptations of the flesh. Professor Mendoza says it's clear that Sarah was motivated by a desire to share his faith with the natives. Sarah writes excitedly about how he had finally found his life's calling, that he would give his life to these people uh, in, in their salvation. Sarah founded the first mission at Monterey in June 1770. Uh, each mission was clearly uh, different and distinct. Each mission basically was rooted in the indigenous community of the site. Uh, but, uh, just as importantly, in the personality of, of the friar or the missionary who was the administrator of those early developments. Clearly, uh, these were very challenging places. Uh, you have a missionary who speaks maybe one or more languages, including Latin. Uh, they're now uh, basically placed in a context where they don't speak the language at all. And so they're relying on their indigenous counterparts. Uh, these were, you know, the equivalent of the sheriff or, uh, or the mayor. And they would work with that individual to communicate the needs of the mission and also uh, basically work with them in the evangelization. The Franciscans uh, were relentless in their devotion. Uh, every three hours or so, the church bells would ring to wake the friars so they could do their daily prayers. This went on day and night. By five in the morning, they were preparing for the early morning mass. Uh, they would engage the mass at about six with the indigenous community, and then the workday would start. Soldiers were typically housed in a garrison just off-site from the compound. The compound itself would include work areas such as a blacksmith's shop and places for crafts and weaving. These sites were self-sufficient, so everybody had to depend on one another. And that's why I refer to them in, in large part as communes. It was a communal venture. Uh, the friars and the indigenous community and even the Spanish soldiers all had to contribute to the enterprise. Most activities of the missions were agricultural. The natives and the Spanish shared farming methods, and for the most part, it worked pretty well. I think of it as a symbiotic relationship. Native California did not have a full-blown agricultural tradition. Uh, they were primarily hunter-gatherer uh, uh, or transhuman populations that moved over the landscape, collecting things seasonally. And that's why many of their villages were really more temporary. They would move from place to place, often revisiting old sites, but in relationship to the seasons and the availability of different food groups. Uh, so when the Spanish arrived, they had a more sedentary existence. They, they were into farming. The missions also brought California its wine industry. The arcades that fronted the missions often became the centerpiece of what could be construed as an indigenous market in many of these missions. Uh, this happened all over the American Southwest. History books often portray the Native Americans as little more than slaves to the Spanish. But Professor Mendoza says this wasn't the case. Of course, this is not to say that there were not conflicts, both between the Europeans and the Native Americans, but 
also between the missionaries and the soldiers. One thing to keep in mind about New Spain is that the missionaries and the military were not always on the same page about how the natives ought to be treated. Serra did not care for the identification of the church with the military on any level. In fact, it was really a marriage of convenience because they had no idea what they'd gotten into. One of the few things that uh, saved the mission was uh, the fact that during the course of these uh, conflicts that uh, basically were provoked by the Spanish soldiers, uh, on one occasion, uh, the indigenous community confronted the mission and the missionaries came out with a banner uh, of Our Lady of Sorrows and they unfurled it and the native peoples literally were pacified in that instance. It was con it's long been construed a miracle for that community uh, and that banner of uh, Our Lady of the Sorrows continues hanging the church there at that site. So that was a rough beginning to Los Angeles. And, and I guess Los Angeles is identified with a lot of uh, rough starts, uh, but it has proven to be one of the most prosperous communities. The mission's fortunes began to decline. It got really bad once the Spanish government stopped funding the building of new missions after nearly 60 years. The Spanish fortunes had dwindled they now found themselves in the midst of fighting independence movements in the early 1800s. And by 1810, the Spanish withdrew support of the missions and the soldiers in California. The soldiers, without the support of their faraway benefactors, began to prey on the missionaries. Uh, it, was, it was almost like a form of extortion. In other words, if you want protection, uh, you are going to have to give us so much in the way of food and, 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 uh, and other resources. And the missionaries were reluctant, but they had really little choice. And their lands are being, uh, they are being dispossessed of their lands and resources. And the only thing left are the churches. The age of the missions was over, and California, as we know it today, began to take shape. Unfortunately, abuses against the Native Americans really ramped up after the missions went away. People tend to conflate that period with the early days of Father Sarah. Father Sarah had already uh, passed away in 1784. By the 1820s, other friars are stepping in and beginning to write grievances to the Spanish government. Uh, and then, of course, the Mexican government about the destitute nature of the indigenous peoples. We see dwindling fortunes. We see more colonists. There's nothing to stem the tide that Father Sarah had hoped to stem in his early days in the founding of the first missions. The worst atrocities against the Native Americans happened after the age of the missions. In fact, after California became a state in 1850, the state constitution for years deprived the natives of any legal protection, meaning a white person could kill a native with no consequences. And many did. One thing that never entirely went away, the Catholic faith that the missionaries so zealously brought with them. It literally was one of the most prosperous missions of California. Uh, it ultimately cloned, uh, literally a decade later, uh, another uh, uh, church, which was really the first church, not a mission, uh, that was built with that specific intent. And, uh, and that was the Church of Our Lady of Angels, Nuestra Señora La Reina de Los Angeles del Rio Porciuncula, Our Lady of Angels, the Queen of the River uh, Porciuncula, which was an indigenous term. Uh, 
And that was founded in 1781. So now we have both the mission and a church community right in the heart of what is now modern day Los Angeles. The legacy of Junipero Serra, the father of the missions, is today, as you'd expect, somewhat mixed. Stanford University is dropping the name of St. Junipero Serra from its mailing address and two buildings. Now, the university is making the change because it says, quote, Serra contributed to the destruction of the cultural, economic, and religious practices of indigenous communities. There are efforts across California, including at Stanford University, to expunge his name from buildings and landmarks. Professor Mendoza says this is especially ironic, considering the well-documented abuses perpetrated by Governor Stanford, the university's namesake. So what are we to think about the turbulent history of Catholicism in California, and about this still controversial saint? Well, one of the clues that Sarah was not the bad guy you might have read about in history books was that the natives he converted wept and mourned him when he died, and even collected relics from his body, knowing that he was a holy man and a future saint worth remembering. Unlike uh, many of us today, Sarah uh, was a man on a mission, uh, not to use that as a pun, but he was absolutely determined to engage the salvation of indigenous communities. And while for some that may be seen as an intrusion, for Sarah in his time, uh, that was seen as one of the most benevolent thing one could do. In other words, give one's life over to others. And that's what he did. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks to our Rome correspondent, Courtney Mares, for her segment on Loretto.